Hello, welcome to another podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to Craig, who is a dog historian, host of the Hunting Dogs Confidential podcast, and author of Pointing Dogs Volume 1 and 2. And honestly, I have never met anyone as knowledgeable on the history and the background behind so many different gun dog breeds. And I just find Craig to be such a like incredible person to listen to. Uh, when it comes to dogs, just a really fascinating person. So I'm sure you're going to love this podcast. Let's get started. Well, hey, Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very excited to have you on a guest. I feel like sometimes as a podcast host, I have uh, found this strategy now of listening to a lot of podcasts and stealing guests from other shows. <laughs> well, that's the way it's done, right? I mean, you know, they, they provide inspiration, let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so when I listen to a podcast and I think, wow, that was a really good episode or, you know, that guest is particularly interesting person to talk to, then, you know, I'll tend to tend to uh reach out so yeah really glad to have you on you have a very interesting background um well maybe you can explain a little bit yourself uh that's probably easier well i guess the easiest way to explain myself is the way i you know i've explained or i've characterized myself as basically a curious canadian with a credit card um so i'm i live in canada i have a you know make a modest income my wife and i are sort of you know solid middle class people but we save all of our pennies and all of our time to travel, uh, to travel to photograph dogs and to uh, watch hunting dogs in the field and to, you know, pursue our passion, which is mainly hunting or what you would call uh, shooting in, in your part of the world and uh, and bird dogs, really. Um, so my background is that I started many, many years ago when I got my first dog. As soon as my wife and I settled down, we moved for a number of years. Um, we first met in Quebec in Canada, and then we moved uh, to Manitoba, back to Quebec. And then we lived for a while in Italy, um, parts of France, and then finally settled down back here right in central Canada. And as soon as we got a, uh, a house with a fence, uh, I bought a bird dog. Uh, I've always wanted one. I grew up hunting. I grew up uh, in a family that uh, hunted uh, for sport, I suppose, but as well as subsistence. We... Uh, my father's family comes uh, from Ukraine. My mother's family comes from Iceland. And they homesteaded, basically. They were settlers on the prairies here of southern Manitoba. And they they hunted, uh, you know, again, for sport, but also to feed the family. And so I grew up in a tradition of hunting, um, but without hunting dogs, because dogs were expensive. Dogs, you know, especially purebred dogs or trained dogs, they were expensive. They had farm dogs. Uh, but they were there mainly to chase the coyotes out of the yard or warn when a bear was coming near. That was about it. So as soon as I was able to, as soon as my wife settled, my wife and I settled down in a home where we had a yard and a fence, uh, I got a bird dog. And that dog uh, sort of, you know, lit the, the lit the fire. Or, you know, that was sort of my main inspiration. I wanted to learn everything I could about that particular dog, but also about his breed. He was a Weimaraner, a short-haired Weimaraner. Uh, and a good one, which are rare as hen's teeth. He was actually a good hunting dog. Here in North America, there are many, many, many wine runners that are not bred for hunting, but um, I happened to, you know, sort of stumble upon one. And he fascinated me, and his breed fascinated me. And the fact that there were other breeds like him or his 
fascinated me. And so I decided to learn as much as I could about them. And this was before the internet. So I couldn't just, you know, Google the breed on Wikipedia or something. I had to go to local libraries. And at the time, there were virtually no books that covered all of the breeds in depth that I wanted to learn about. So I decided, well, if there is no book like that, I'm going to have to write one. And I did. Uh, it took me 10 years to write my first one and another 12 to write my second one. So I'm I'm sort of the world's most curious dog guy, but I'm also the world's slowest writer. Yeah, well, you kind of undersell yourself, though, because it's the level of research that goes into each book, right? Because you've done a lot of traveling to see... Uh, all of these dogs in the natural environment, if you can call it that, you know, the areas where they're more prevalent. Is that right? Yeah, you know, as soon as I started my research, what I realized fairly early on was that a lot of the stuff I was coming across, you know, whether it be published by a breed club or in, you know, in these sort of pseudo dog encyclopedias, were either just the confirmation standard of the dog. It should be this high, it should weigh this much, should be this color. And oh, by the way, it comes from noble background in some exotic country. There was very sort of surface level information about these breeds, fairly generic. Um, you know, they were all noble and they were all loyal and they were all good, uh, but there was no specifics about, well, how did they hunt? You know, how fast were they? Did they like water? Did they? Did they range out or were they close working? Did they retrieve naturally? All these sorts of things that I, I wanted to know. I couldn't find that information. And then in the few sources that did mention these sorts of things, um, the odd magazine article or, you know, occasional book, I, I realized early on that a lot of them were just copying information from other sources. And a lot of it wasn't particularly accurate. Or it was clear that the person who wrote it had never actually seen one of those dogs in action or hunted behind one, had never been to their country of origin. You know, here's somebody in the middle of Iowa talking about a dog from Italy or the Czech Republic who probably couldn't find those countries on a map. And so I realized, you know, if I was going to write a book, I wanted to write one for me. I wanted to write one that basically answered all the questions that I had about these breeds. And in order to do that, you couldn't just call somebody up that happened to have one or two of those dogs for a year or two. You couldn't even call up, you know, some of the people here in North America that had never really, I mean, some of them couldn't even pronounce the breed name properly or didn't really know the background of the breeds. So it became obvious that I had to travel and I had to go to these countries um, to find out and to interview true experts. And it just so happens that my wife and I love traveling. I mean, that's one of our favorite things to do. I'm a professional photographer and that's what I did for a living. I photograph for a living. I love traveling. I love dogs. So my goodness, I mean, what a great combination. Why don't I just travel with the love of my life doing what we love doing? And so, yeah, that's what I did. I, I ended up traveling for many, many years. Every time we got enough money put aside, we would get on a plane and go to some European country and then find some breeder in some very obscure place in the, you know, in the mountains of wherever and photograph his dogs and talk to him about that, uh, about the dogs and about the breed. Can you give me an example where that kind of happened? Like where maybe something was wrong or in, you know, the way that the breed was being written about, or I don't know, is there like a, a good example of that? Maybe a breed that comes to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, not only did I find some of the stuff, you know, mistaken or just sort of 
not particularly true, but also embellished. And um, there's a couple of examples that come to mind. The Weimaraner, for instance, you know, one of the first breeds I I started researching. Well, everybody, quote unquote, knows that it was the, you know, the Archduke or the Grand Duke, Carl uh, August of Weimar that created the breed. Sorry, no, that's completely false. It's it's there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Carl August in the you know the court of Weimar even knew what a Weimaraner was. Yeah, there are a few vaguely, you know, sort of vague engravings that kind of show a dog that might pass for a Weimaraner or a Visla or a GSP or a hound of any sort. I mean, it's a dog. It's got four legs and droopy ears. Um, but because the breed eventually was named after after the the, the court of Weimar or the, vill- or the village or the, the town of Weimar, that's how it got its um, name and that's how it got its repu- reputation. And because in North America, one of the first priorities of the people who first brought them over was to market them. In fact, the breed uh, club at the time was hired, hired, you know, sort of a Madison Avenue advertising agency to advertise these dogs and to, you know, oh, wow. tell tall tales about them. And so, of course, if you could get some noble involved in there, especially a grand duke, well, you're just going to sell them all the more. But really, you know, even some of the people in Germany in the early days of the Weimaraner Club heard those rumors and tried to prove them and found zero evidence for it. So, you know, we find those sorts of embellishments. It's basically marketing spin. Every breed needs a backstory. And a lot of them have backstories that really don't pan out. They're really not quite accurate. They're just embellishments or things that people spin to, you know, to help give the breed some sort of a personality or or a market niche. And what I found out was that when you really dig back into the actual true histories of these breeds and you find firsthand uh, sources, original sources that talk about them, the truth is actually far more fascinating than the sort of the myths that grew up around them. And then the other example I can give you, and I won't name the breed, it's a fairly obscure breed from France. But what I discovered early on was that I, I needed to dis- I needed to find a way to find true experts in every breed, in every breed. So people look at me and they say, oh, Craig, you're a dog expert. And I say, no, I'm not a dog expert, but I have become an expert at finding experts. I, I, I've learned, I've sort of, you know, refined and, and honed my bullshit detector. And now I'm able to figure out, okay, who talks the talk and also walks the walk. Where are the true experts in these breeds? Who are the people who have dedicated, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of their lives breeding these dogs specifically for work, specifically to do the things that these dogs are designed to do? And who are the people who only talk the talk and really don't have anything to back it up? Years ago, I wanted to investigate a breed of a dog in France. It's a fairly obscure breed, as I mentioned. I saw a magazine article and it featured a fellow who breeds them for work, for, for hunting. And he's a professional dog trainer and he had all sorts of awards and he breeds them, you know, he goes into field trials and he's well known and well respected in the field trial community. But he's one of the very few in that breed that actually breeds those dogs for work. So before I got a hold of him, I'll just call him Mr. X, uh, I decided I would contact the breed club in France. And so I called up the breed club and the president of the breed club, a very lovely person, answered the phone and I started asking questions. 
And my questions are not, what does the dog look like? I have pictures. I don't need to know, you know, how tall it is. There's a breed standard for that. I want to know about the performance aspect of those dogs. So I asked them questions. I would say, well, listen, um, are these dogs, you know, not, do they have a natural affinity for water or for retrieving? Um, do they range out wide or do they stay in close? Uh, you know, things like that. And all of the answers were, oh, they're wonderful with children or they're very calm around the house. They're beautiful dogs. They have a beautiful coat. So I, I realized, you know what, this person doesn't really know what this breed is in the field. All they do is raise pets. So I said, okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Um, do you know Mr. X? Because I saw an article about him in a newspaper or in a magazine about these dogs. And the person replied, oh, yes, I know him. And let's just say that we don't get along. We're not on the same wavelength. With that answer, I knew that is exactly the person I need to contact is Mr. X. That's the wavelength I'm on. And if you don't get along with Mr. X, that tells me that he is one of the hardcore breeders of these dogs as hardcore working dogs. I got a hold of him. I had a conversation with him. And I'm glad to say that to this day, he's a good friend of mine. I visited him several times. I've seen his dogs in action. They are absolutely unbelievable, world-class dogs that run circles around every other dog in that breed because the breed is dominated mainly by people who don't work their dogs. So Does those that, are a couple of ways that I've, you know, sort of found things out, uh, you know, really sort of by trying to cut through the noise, trying to dispel some of the myths. And also by own, I'm a hunter. I write hunting book. I write dog, <laughs> sorry. I write books about hunting dogs for hunters, period. If you want information about them and other aspects, it's available. It's the hunting aspects, the information about their hunting qualities and abilities that is sorely lacking. And that's where I come in and that's where my work comes in. Does it bother you that there are, um, you know, does, does do the show lines and stuff like that? Does that, does that frustrate you? I know, for example, in some breeds, like, uh, you look at like Labradors, right? You couldn't have a bigger difference between, uh, you know, the working line dog and the show line dog. When you see stuff like that, does that bother you or are you just not really fussed? It used to bother me a lot more than it does now. I've sort of come to terms with it because I understand that number one, dog shows and the entire show industry creates a, you know, a lot of ripples in the economy. Millions of people around the world really enjoy it as a sport. Most of them are, you know, uh, are kind hearted people with with good intentions for their breed and for their dogs. Most of their dogs are in good hands and well cared for. So I'm not opposed to what they do with their dogs. What I am opposed to are those that are in that community that claim that because their dog conforms to the breed standard, it is therefore a good hunting dog without any proof whatsoever. I know a number of show breeders and some of them are, and, and all of them are really nice people. And some of them are actually honest enough to admit um, that the dogs that they breed do not, or, or that they have no evidence to support the claim that their dogs will hunt. So if a hunter contacts them and says, hey, do you have a litter available? I'm a hunter, I would like one to hunt with. They are honest enough to say, you know what? My dogs are healthy. They're good with kids. They're wonderful to be around, but I cannot tell you how well they're going to hunt or even if they will hunt. But they are in the minority. Um, not 
enough show breeders are honest enough to say that. Now, they don't have to say that their dogs are terrible hunters. They, In fact, they might even be good hunters. I know some show breeders that do produce really good hunting dogs, but you need the evidence to back it up. You need some way to prove to the people that want these dogs that, yeah, here we go. Look at the pedigree. I've got some field trial champions in there. I've got some personal hunting dogs in there. There's some hunt test dogs or, or, or whatever system. But there is some way to show them that the chances of them getting a good dog that will hunt well for them in the way they hunt, there is evidence for it. It's the people that have none whatsoever that go out and put dogs that are basically useless in the field in the hands of someone who has the highest hopes I've seen hunters crushed by getting a dog that after a year or two, they realize is not a good hunting dog, but they love the dog. It's a family pet. The kids love it. They're not going to get rid of that dog. They're saddled with this dog for the next 15 years. And again, the dog will have a good life. They're well-loved. The people had good intentions starting out, but I've just seen them, their spirits crushed and the breed reputation, therefore ruined. So that's a long way to answer the question. But again, I have issues. I have some problems with people who are not honest about what they're doing. If you breed show dogs and you love showing, good on you. Love to your dog. Hug it, you know, keep it close to you and keep it alive and healthy as long as you possibly can. But please do the hunting community a favor and admit that you have no clue whether or not it will hunt or whether it will produce hunting dogs. I, I'm not sure how much of it is dishonesty and how much of it is kind of believing their own hype because I've had that situation happen to me before where I've been at a workshop and there was a conversation going on about Malinois and we were talking about various working line Malinois and a lady kind of butted in and was like, well, you should just get a show line Malinois because they have the perfect confirmation for uh, work and they will, they will outperform any of these working line dogs. And I just couldn't like... I can't fathom how that logic works, you know? but I think some people just believe the, their own hype, you know? They, they do. And it is based upon, you know, they, they can, they can cite studies and they could look at, for instance, mechanical, you know, leverage calculations, and they can look at certain things and say, yes, this particular degree of angulation is better than that degree of angulation because physics prove it. And yeah, there are calculations you could do. So in a way, they do have a valid argument by saying if it's built correctly, it will operate correctly. And that is valid for anything. If your car is not built correctly, it's not going to operate correctly. The issue we find is there's two of these issues. And the, the, the first one and the easiest one to understand, I suppose, is that all right, if we all agree that this particular way is the best way mechanically, what is the best way to test it mechanically? You put a car on a racetrack and you go really fast. No airplane in the world ever flies before they put it in a wind tunnel in actual situations. You have to see it on the ground or in the air to prove it before you can do it. Even if you have the world's smartest computer doing simulations and all the equations you want, you have to actually test it in a way that proves it. So if we look at hunting dogs, particularly pointing dogs, they need to run at speed, all right? The, the mechanism of that dog, the angulations, the elbows, the hips, all those sorts of things need to be correctly formed in order for it to do its job, which is gallop. Now, how do show people test the gallop of a dog? They trot it in a ring. 
So I need a car to go at 100 miles an hour. And to prove that it can go 100 miles an hour, I'm going to drive it at 10 miles an hour in a very small circle. Therefore, it's good for the highway. Okay. So if show breeding and shows were really in the business of evaluating a dog for its performance capabilities, there would be a swimming pool to watch it swim. There would be a long straight track to see its maximum speed. And there would be cameras all over the place that you could slow the heck down and analyze every movement of that dog as it goes. But no, as we have it now, you've got about 10 seconds or 30 or 40 or 50 seconds in a ring trotting around in a, in a circle, one way or maybe the other, down and back or whatever they call it, and you have a judge who's just sort of eyeballing it. Could you ever imagine purchasing any other product of your lifetime that was eyeballed, that was never actually measured, all right? It's supposed to be at a certain size. Well, the German system at every, you know, Zuchtshow, which, the, you know, the, the breeding show in Germany, there's a wicket. They measure every single dog. They measure it from head to tail. I mean, there's a, a panel of experts that look at it. In other shows, it's like one guy or one lady just kind of looking at it and eyeballing it. So there's the that's the main flaw in, in the show argument as, as far as I see it. And then the other one is a little more subtle, and it takes a little bit more thinking to sort of get to the bottom of it. But what we need to understand is that dogs are completely artificial creatures. They're synthetically created creatures. They do not exist in the way that we know a domestic dog, well, their name, domestic. Domestic means we created them. So they are synthetic creatures that in a vacuum would revert very quickly back to their ancestral form, which is basically the, the village dog, the guard, you know, the, the, the garbage dump dog or, or you know, the feral dog state, almost like a coyote. So everything our dogs do is done to an extreme and it's done to an extreme that nature does not want. If I go back to pointing dogs again, you take an English setter, you take an English pointer, a German short hair, puppy, he's eight weeks old, he's 10 weeks old. I have a friend who's got English setter puppies. You put them on the ground at 10 weeks old, they gallop. They have no clue why they're galloping. They just gallop like the wind and they run around and oh, they see a butterfly or they smell a quail in them and they, they stop and they freeze forever. They'll still they'll, they'll point for minutes, half an hour at a time. It's amazing when you see those videos. All of those qualities, the ability to gallop, the ability and the instinct to point are present in wolves, are present in coyotes in very small amounts. A wolf and a coyote can both gallop. Do they do it? Yeah, very rarely. And only in the last hundred meters of that stretch when they're trying to take a deer down. Do they point? Yeah. Rarely, but for about two seconds before they jump on the mouse or jump on the rabbit. Our dogs, we've created them to be basically OCD animals. We've basically instilled in them traits that in nature would kill them. Any wolf that gallops for hours at a time would never survive. Any coyote who points for half an hour would never survive. Now, the only reason those dogs have it is because we keep insisting they have it. If my working dog doesn't gallop, I'm not breeding it. If my working dog doesn't point like a statue forever, I won't breed it. My show dog, if it doesn't gallop forever, I'll breed it because it's pretty. If my show dog doesn't <laughs> point forever, I'll breed it because look at its confirmation. Look at its lovely coat. I'll do it. So what happens is almost unconsciously, because these people are never checking 
never looking for evidence that those extreme traits that we require, if you're never checking them, Mother Nature's working in the background, moving them back. Mother Nature is pushing them back to what is normal. It's like rowing a canoe against a current. If you stop rowing, you don't stand still. You actually start receding. And that's why we see in a line of dogs that have been bred for 50 years, that during that 50 years, no one's ever watched them gallop for an hour. No one's ever checked the point. No one's ever checked the water love or checked the retrieve. They just assume it's there because they're from that breed. Well, it's it's diminished a whole lot. Every generation, it gets less and less and less. And let's face it, there are dogs out there today from pointing dog breeds that don't point. There, You mentioned Labradors. I've seen Labradors that will not swim. That, To my mind, that is, that's insane. Imagine a border collie that doesn't herd. That's no longer a border collie. Yeah, I know. And often, but oftentimes, uh, I think oftentimes when it comes to pet dogs, you actually don't want some of those traits because they're annoying. You know, uh, you know, if you have a cocker spaniel that is running around the house like a lunatic, it's it's you know, it's not so fun as the cocker spaniel that just wants to cuddle and hang out. But of course, you know, it's a different pressure to be a working dog. And that is something I've resigned myself to is that, you know, you mentioned Labradors again. And and for a lot of people, frankly, people who aren't even hunters, they just want a nice pet dog. I often actually suggest Labradors. And I tell them, you know, you should get it from this or that breeder because they're super mellow dogs. They're really nice. They won't hunt a lick. They won't swim most of the time, but they're nice dogs. So if you want to get one, you know, go for it. And I've resigned myself to that. But like I say, it's, it's those breeders who claim things that they have no proof for those are the ones that I think are acting in an unethical way because they're basically pulling the wool over somebody's eyes and selling them a pig in a poke. Um, but then again, like I say, I know some great breeders of pet animals. And um, in fact, my sister has a pet dog. It's, it's who knows what breed it is. It's a Heinz 57. It's a mix of everything. She's the best dog in the world. And oh, my sister got it because she saw this woman. She had these a dog she said where'd you get it she said well i i bred this dog my own because i breed him just for companionship my sister put him put herself on a list got this dog brilliant because just as much as we can breed dogs to run like the wind for an hour we can also breed dogs to be super great companions but as long as we're clear and transparent about what you're breeding for i see no harm in it whatsoever Oh, totally agree. And also, I just wanted to jump back. So you mentioned the claim uh, with the Weimaraners and that royal connection. How do you go about busting these myths? You know, how do you go about actually finding the truth in the history? Obviously, you mentioned speaking to experts, but I would imagine it would be quite difficult to actually get I don't know. I, I that seems seems like quite a difficult thing to do to actually. So I'm just wondering, you know, how, how does how do you go about that? So when I started, this was in the 1990s. This was just pre or just as the internet was coming along. Since the internet has been here, it's a lot easier. But before me, and I actually, in the preface of my first book, I mentioned him. And in the second book, I talk about him a bit as well. There's a fellow, an Englishman named William Arkwright. And he wrote, which in my opinion, is one of the best breed books ever written of all time. It's called The Pointer and His Predecessors. It was published in 1901. And William Arkwright was a very well-to-do Englishman who loved pointing dogs. He bred some of the best pointers of the era. He also bred uh, terriers, I believe. He bred other things, but he had a lot of money and he was, a, you know, had a lot of free time and was obsessed by dogs. 
Well, he wanted to get to the bottom of the English pointers um, uh, history. And so he spent nine or 10 years traveling to libraries throughout Europe. Again, this is in the late 1800s. So he would have taken a ship across the channel. He would have gotten on, you know, horse-drawn carts or the odd train. And he went to the major libraries of Spain and France and all over the place and actually taught himself how to read Spanish and French in order to read the original documents. So I urge everybody, whoever listens to anything I talk about, get a copy of The Pointer and His Predecessors. It is an absolutely amazing book filled with the most amazing information from primary sources. This is a guy who, who didn't just listen to the hype or what was being printed in newspapers at the time. He went to the sources and did that. So he was a big inspiration for me. When I discovered his book, I thought, oh, my God, this is the, you know, the Rosetta Stone of how to do this. Another fellow is a guy named Jean Castaigne. He's a Frenchman, and he wrote a book called Les Chiens d'Arrêt. It's not published in English. Les Chiens d'Arrêt just means pointing dogs. Um, he wrote it when he was 90 in 1960. So he was alive while he was a young man or a young boy when Arkwright wrote his book. And Castaigne wrote about all of the different pointing breeds because he happened to live in France, wrote for some of the major outdoor magazines, and was uh, active in shows and field trials in an area of France where every breed available was, was there, you know? And so he saw them firsthand and he wrote one of the best books that covers all the breeds. So I relied heavily on Arkwright and Castagne and others like them that wrote these books that are obscure. You have to find them on eBay or, or whatnot at first. Then the internet comes along and I start Googling and oh my goodness, you start finding more and more and more. And then the next sort of thing, not just with the internet and Wikipedia and magazine articles and things like that and books that I could order on eBay, national libraries started publishing their entire archives. They would scan them with optical character recognition software and publish. The, the National Library of France has like hundreds of millions of documents online for free that you can consult. So when Arkwright was active, when Castaigne was active, there were weekly and monthly newspapers about field trials and pointing dogs and dogs and hunting dogs published every week for 50 years in France. Well, every single issue of some of those magazines is now available online for free. So I've been down rabbit holes that have taken, oh my God, my wife would knock on my office door. She'd go, honey, it's 4 a.m. I'm like, what? 4 a.m.? You've been in here for 73 hours. And I'd be like, oh my God, I found another <laughs> library. I found another source of information. And, and that's basically how I did it was I just spent inordinate amount of time on my computer or, or reading books and, and, you know, finding these old magazines and just reading them. But going to primary sources, not reading those things that have been filtered down over the years and embellished almost like a game of telephone, you know, where it just gets changed over the years, is you got to go to the original sources. Now, I'm lucky. My wife and I, we speak French at home, so I'm bilingual. I also speak Italian. And when you speak Italian and, and French, you can also read. I can, I can read Portuguese. I can read Spanish. So I'm lucky in that I can read those. But then again, Google Translate comes out. So now I find something in Norwegian. Well, you click the Translate button. You find something in you know Slovakian or whatever. You click the Translate. And I'm able to get all these great sources now. So I... I mean, if, if Arkwright were alive today, he'd be green with envy going, oh, my God, dude, you know, you can do in an afternoon what took me a year to do in a library in, you know, Madrid. I find it so fascinating. I think this is why you're uh, 
such a special human being in some ways that I have to ask, Craig, are you aware of anyone doing this kind of work in other breeds, though, away from pointers? Because I, I don't come across a lot of people that are doing what you're doing. There are a couple, there are a couple people online, but I, yeah, no, I shouldn't say that. So in, in your own, you're in England, yeah? Yeah, that's right. David Hancock, um, I believe he's now passed on, but David Hancock uh, has a, a website and he uh, has a huge archive that is now held at the Kennel Club uh, in London. I've actually visited the Kennel Club and read through his archive and read through some of the books there, which again is an absolutely amazing place, not just for pointing dogs, but for all, well, all dogs, basically all breeds of dogs. But David Hancock has written about all the different breeds of dogs, from hounds to terriers to 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 pointing dogs to, to retrievers, water dogs. So he has a massive collection online, and I would suggest that you go to it. I I don't have the URL in front of me, but just look him up. David Hancock um, is he an MBE? What's an MBE? Member of the? Sorry, he's got some awards. Yeah, he's, I don't think yeah. he's quite a knight, but he's somewhere close to one of those <laughs> things. Very very well known guy. I think a show judge for many years. He's written a number of books. Uh, I have all of his books, but if you go online, I believe his entire archive of all of the magazine articles that he's written are all available online. So he's a huge source of information. Oh, okay, you, I'm very inspired. You, I, I really, yeah, it's very inspiring. I must, I have to admit, I'm not really a pointer guy to be honest. But when I hear you talk about pointers, I just find it so fascinating that even even though I'm not a pointer person, I just really love hearing the history. Um, I'm more into kind of shepherds and guarding breeds. Um, well, again, he's written about those as well. He's written about everything. David Hancock, again, he he's to me sort of, you know, I bow down to, to the wisdom of David Hancock because he's he's written about just about every breed of dog that's ever existed. Um, and so, but, you know, when you say that you're not into pointers or setters, well, the fact is pointers and setters are virtually unknown in England. Uh, in their in their homelands, they are a, the English setter is on the list of vulnerable breeds in the in the kennel club. I mean, they might have there might be in a good year there might be 350 English setter puppies born or whelped in in the UK. Um, in a good year in Italy, it's between 15 and 20,000 English setters are whelped in Italy. So it's it comes as no surprise that an Englishman pointers and setters are not even on your radar. I remember we were in Darlington in the North. We were maybe half an hour, 45 minutes away from one of the major trials that takes place on a moor near there. And we were in a pub. And of course the fellow, you know, serving us heard our Canadian accent and asked why we were in town. And I said, well, we're there for a field trial for pointers and setters. He said, a what now? I had to explain what a field trial was. I had to explain to this guy what an English setter was. And he's literally <laughs> lived his whole life, you know, 50 miles or more or less from one of the great field trial places in the world. But there's a reason for that. It's because pointers and setters haven't been the go-to main gun dog in England since about the 1860s. So it's been over, you know, 150 years or so that they just weren't mainstream. Labs are mainstream. Cockers are mainstream. Springers are mainstream. Uh, even breeds like, you know, Hungarian Vishlas and GSPs and Weimaraners, there are way more of those dogs than there are pointers and setters in England. But the pointer and setter community in the UK is fantastic. I had probably the best time 
it was probably one of the most remarkable trips that my wife had, and I have ever taken to watch dogs was to, to go and watch field trials on the moors of Northern England. It, it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind because I realized after several days of hanging up with these people that they were completely unknown. It's like this roving band. They start with trials in the South and they move to the North and they're all, it's mainly the same people, a few hundred of them, not even. That even that sort of travel around and they trial their dogs. They all know each other. They've all been around for years and years. And I realized that they were that my wife and I had almost stumbled upon like like a lost tribe in the Amazon that hadn't had outside <laughs> contact in fifty or two hundred years. You know, because nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew what they were doing. Yet they had been doing something that had been going on since the eighteen sixties. They are the old guard. They are the people that are, that keep that flame alive. And it's it's. I can't say it's thriving because there's not many of them, but they are just as passionate as their ancestors were. And their dogs are are just as good, if not better than they were. They produce some of the best dogs in the world, even though they produce so few of them. So it was a really amazing experience um, to see their world through their eyes and also to see their reaction to us as if, again, it, like that lost tribe, it's all of a sudden these these strange people from outside of you know from Canada are actually paying us attention what is this we're just not used to <laughs> attention but yeah they live in their own little world and have great dogs and they're wonderful wonderful people yeah it's funny uh so I have a pet dog training business so you're right we do see lots of Labradors Springers Cockers uh lots of those kind of dogs um actually it's funny you mentioned Wieslers because I remember when I was young and I was getting into dogs you didn't really see many Wieslers but now over the last 10 years or so they've they've skyrocketed in popularity and they're far more common and then when it comes to pointers I guess more than English pointers we probably see German shortheads uh, the most out of the point pointed uh pointer breeds <laughs> yes, yes you call, yeah hprs you call them the hunt point retrieve breeds hprs yeah uh, in the UK yeah I mean they are and there are there are reasons for that um, the, like I say, the pointers and setters, um, their date, like Arkwright, you know, at the end of Arkwright's book published in 1901, he says that the pointers days of glory have faded. That's 1901. They, they were already on their way out. They were obscure. They were, they were, um, basically the shooting styles changed in Britain, uh, whereby uh, driven shoots were much more popular because of the Kings and the Royals, you know, they wanted to have their, they, they wanted to have their, you know, driven shoots where you have beaters and picker up, pickers up yeah. and you have Labradors and Spaniels doing that sort of thing. So there's really no use for a pointing dog at that time. And they really faded. So by the time the Second World War runs around or comes around, they're really on nobody's uh, radar. There were still a few breeders, especially in Scotland and in the north of England, because where grouse numbers were low enough that you needed a pointer setter and you couldn't really drive them. So there were some hangers on just a few remnants of that population. But then what happens is the second world war ends and tens of thousands of service men and women who had fought in Europe start coming back to England and to the U S and what did they say? What did they see while they were stationed in Germany during the fifties and sixties? They saw GSPs. They saw wire hairs. They saw Weimaraners. They saw Vishlas a little bit later on in the sixties and seventies, they started trickling over and so they became the wonder dog because they were not just pointing specialists. They weren't dogs that only ran and pointed and something else did the fetching. Something else did the water work. They were what we in North America call versatile dogs 
or what you call hunt, point, and retrieve dogs. So for your average guy, 1950s and 60s, you know, disposable income is going up. The population is growing. People have a little bit more time on their hands. What do they want? Well, they might want a, a lab or a, or a springer for a little bit of rough shooting. But also there's this other option. I could take a dog that actually points. Um, but also fetches, and that also goes in the water. And so they found a niche in this growing number of shooters or shooting sportsmen in the in the UK, as well as in North America, and eventually became sort of the most dominant breeds uh, for pointing breeds. And the pointer and setter continued to lag behind because they were considered a specialist breed. Uh, you needed access to moors. Um, you know, it's generally well-to-do people who have these dogs or people who are very competitive and want to do field trials. Um, but it's a particularly British thing. In Ireland, um, the Irish setter is wildly popular um, because there are a lot of shooting men out there that have, you know, always have had uh, Irish setters and pointers. So it really varies, you know, pointers and setters are wildly popular in Italy, in France. Um, they're the number one breed, you know, the English setters. Um, Scandinavia, uh, Australia, South America, um, South America, there are a few in um, South Africa, there are some. So, and of course, here in North America, pointers and setters, especially in the US, are very, very popular. But the lab is still the king of the world, but the lab is still the most, you know, popular breed in the world. I can um, understand why they're really uh, fantastic dogs. They're ver so versatile as well. Yes, they are. You know. Yeah, fantastic dogs. And actually, uh, I was listening to your podcast. Actually, I think you did two on the 4K9, uh, Cameron Ford. Uh, what's yes. his podcast? Sentence sent, sent, sent Sensibilities or something? I can't remember the name of the podcast now. Yes, it's a dog training. Yes, they, they do some really high-end training for detection dogs and things like yeah, that. Yeah, well, this is what I wanted to ask you about because it was funny when I started listening to that podcast because for me in England... I see Cocker Spaniels and Springer Sp Spaniels as being so such a staple. Um, but sometimes when I listen to that podcast, the conversations about Spaniels is almost like it's the hot new thing, you know, in the in the scent work world. And that just seems very alien to me because they just seem like such a staple over here. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the scent work world is a different type of a world and their roots go back to the Malinois, their roots go back to the German Shepherd, their roots go back to the guarding and herding dogs, simply because the people who were doing the detecting were people who were invested with authority, policemen, military, things like that. And so what dogs were they working work working with? They were working with guard dogs because part of their job was, you know, prison work and, uh, you know, prisoner of war camps and things like that. So you needed the big you know, vicious type dogs that were scary. And so naturally when, you know, governments and other agencies said, well, where do we find dogs that can work with police? Well, we'll use the dogs that they have. And it's worked out very well over the years. I mean, you know, you have these dogs going into war zones, you have these dogs into, you know, uh, earthquake wreckage and things like that. And they're ubiquitous. You see them. But over the years, what we're finding or what they're finding and what I've learned from them is that that whole job of detecting, you know, deterring bad guys or keeping them behind barbed wire or finding, you know, nasty things from drugs to bombs, that whole thing is now moved out of simply the criminal or, you know, the war zone. And it's moved into daily life. It's moved into checking for devices in stadiums. It's moved into checking for contraband at airports. 
And what they noticed was that in some situations, uh, the big mean looking dog with a muzzle it scares the shit out of people and just makes the situation worse. And so having a cute, fuzzy little guy like, a, you know, like a, a Springer or a Cocker, that makes much more sense to them. Um, but when they started with those things, they realized that genetically, not only do these dogs look different, they're smaller and friendlier looking and friendlier, but they seem to operate at different wavelengths. Like, like they're, they're just mentally hardwired in a different way for everything. Uh, from all of their behaviors to the way, you know, they, they detect things. And that's why they got a hold of me was to say, okay, well, what's in the genetic background of these dogs that we need to be aware of, that we need to work with? And again, it was an amazing conversation with them. I really enjoyed having the conversation with them. And I've, I've spoken to them since and we've exchanged some information. But yeah, I mean, they need to realize that these dogs are the result of cultural and traditional sort of uh, reasons for being. In other words, they, they were molded by the use required of them, whether it be finding reindeer in Norway or capercaillie up in a tree, uh, you know, or finding truffles in Italy. I've always said this, that a dog breed is basically a four-legged idea that's been agreed upon by a group of people who share that idea. So if a group of people decides that a dog needs to range out five miles from me to find anything with four legs and horns and then bark at it, and you do that for generations and generations, that's what you're gonna get. Dogs that are just driven and hardwired to run miles away and then bark at something to make sort of a standoff that I can go and shoot. If you then decide, well, no, I need a dog that stays within 10 feet and digs at the ground every time it smells a truffle. Well, guess what? You're going to have a bunch of dogs that never go more than 10 feet and that are always sniffing for things. And so they needed to understand that the cocker is hardwired and the springer is hardwired to basically move at 100 miles an hour unless they're sleeping uh, and to find things. And once it finds those things, to, to lunge at them, to become extremely excited, which may be the opposite. Maybe you want a dog that when it smells something, it sits or lays down. Uh, well, a setter or a border collie might be a little better for that because that's what they do. You might want something that uses its eyes much more than it uses its nose. Well, you might want a, a sight hunt. Uh, you might want a dog that is very sort of mellow, slow moving and lethargic. Well, there are breeds that are just you know, calm and easygoing dogs that don't get excited very much. So that's what it comes down to. And, and their work that they're doing is fantastic. And they're, they're understanding now that a dog isn't just a dog. Once you get a dog breed, you have an idea, you have, you have baggage, you have a background in that dog. And if you don't accommodate for that, if you don't make adjustments for that, you'll be fighting that for the rest of the time that dog is in training. I have found in my own experiences that the working spaniels, I particularly think the cockers, but I'm sure the springers are just as great, are just unbelievable scent work dogs. You know, they just have such a ridiculous talent for it. And to the point where when we run scent work classes, sometimes it can feel bad. I can feel bad for the other people in the class because they're comparing their dog to the spaniel. 
that yeah. has just it just gets the idea immediately. Um, are there any other breeds that you think are kind of like sleeping giants when it comes to scent work? Like actually, this breed would be phenomenal, but people just don't know about them yet. Yeah, uh, and I, I said that to him. Some of the Spitz breeds, as well as some of the breeds, some of the Nordic type breeds, because. So they were, and again, I'm sort of paraphrasing and I'm coming from what I understood. These guys could be much more sort of accurate in terms of describing what they mean. But sometimes you need a dog that lives its life on a leash and never goes further than 10 feet from you. It's it's right there. It's, it's inspecting, you know, the suitcase coming in from this place, you know, checking for sausages from Germany or something, or it's checking for contraband from some other com- country. You need it to be calm and, and sort of cute enough so that it passes in the airport and doesn't scare anybody. And that can has a, has a good nose and doesn't really want to go out further. If somehow it slips off the leash, it's not in the next county. It's right there. It's going to stay stay next to you. Um, but what they said is that sometimes they want a dog that goes out further. And that's one of their struggles was they were getting these dogs that they weren't programmed to go a mile away for looking for something. And then once they were a mile away, what were they supposed to do? Well, there are breeds that have been bred for 150, 200, 300, 500 years. That's all they do. The hunter starts in the edge of the forest. He lets the dog go and just sits there and waits until he hears the dog barking at several hundred meters or a mile away. And the dog is there saying, hey, dad, look what I found. Come and shoot it. And so why would you want to try and train a lab or train a, 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 a cocker to do that um, when there are these breeds that are hardwired to do that in the first place? So distance is one of the things. So I would look at dogs that are basically bred to, to work at a distance. I would also look at dogs that are basically bred to bark. Um, at, to report to you by barking at certain things instead of you know having other behaviors or, or that are used to being on their own for a long long period of time. I mean, you know, I've seen dogs trained in Germany that um, you know they're trained to if they find the deer they'll wait overnight for the hunter to to arrive. Um, you know, and again, these are dogs that have been selectively bred to to be that sort of way. So yeah, I mean, there are breeds like that. Um, other breeds that uh, are quiet. You know, um, and, and cockers here, I'll tell you an interesting story. So if a cocker spaniel is in a field trial and correct me if I'm wrong and a springer and they bark and they're whiny, I'm thinking that judge is not going to like that very much. They want to be, you don't want a yippy, yippy dog. You want a silent dog. Right. And also a cocker or a springer in a UK trial, if it goes more than I don't know, 20, 30, 40 yards, not very, you know, gun range away from you it's not going to be very valued. Well, I have a friend in Germany and I actually interviewed her on my podcast and she hunts in the German way, which is basically you line up at the forest with a bunch of hunters, 50, hundred yards apart. You send your dogs in there, a bunch of them. And the dogs are basically charged to go in there, find game, bark, and then force it back towards you. It's a driven shoot for, for large game or rabbits or foxes. And the shooters wait and the guns wait and the, the, the animals pass and you shoot them. Now, the dogs must be loud, okay? Because how else do you know where the dog is? So every dog that they unleash, they go out there. And as soon as the dog hits scent or hits sight the game, sees the game, they open up and start barking. And, and they say that they could read their dogs. They know if it's a boar. They know if it's a deer just by the way it's barking. And also how fast it's barking. And then the bark is closer and closer and closer. So now you get ready and you can shoot. All right. She happened to get a cocker spaniel one day, an English cocker, and loved it. 
She trained that dog to do that. And since then started breeding cockers. She now has cockers. She has a line of cocker spaniels that range out up to a mile and are loud on sight and on scent. The complete polar opposite to what a cocker should be doing in England. I'm sure there are English people listening to this right now. They're just horrified at the idea of a cocker running that far and barking its head off and chasing deer back to the gun. But she was able to do that and through selective breeding now has a line of cockers that basically work like hounds. I find this really interesting. Uh, I, there seem to be inevitably lines of dogs that do particular behaviors or that have been bred for something different. And I think that there are a lot of people that are very traditionalist and they hate the idea of change uh, in, in breeds. And also something I've seen as well, Craig, you've probably come across it too, is people kind of creating their own breeds, you know, yes. where they're kind of crossing things together or, or, you know, breeding for a particular purpose. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does that, does, are you someone that's more traditionalist? Does that bother you or, you know, how, what are your thoughts? My overriding um, philosophy about dogs is that if you have a dog, I'm talking about individual dogs, and you go and do your activity, whether it be, you know, a field trial or hunting or, or whatever, herding or whatever you do. If you engage in that activity with your dog and you have a smile on your face on the way home, that's a good dog. I don't care what breed it is, what you've done, what the cross, I don't care. If you're smiling, if your dog makes you smile, because that's basically its function on earth, is to please us, to make us smile, and to give us a greater sense of connection to the natural world. That's what dogs exist for. If they're doing that, then good on you. Now, should certain breeds be kept in their traditional roles? Yes, if they are used in their traditional roles. There's a reason that pointers should be the way a pointer should be and a lab should be the way a lab should be and a cocker should act like a cocker. Context. Again, uh, I was amazed when I was at a field trial in England because none of the dogs barked. Uh, even when they were in the car, they, it was silent and so were the handlers. I found that English field trials were very English. Everybody was quite reserved. Their dogs were quite reserved. They were <laughs> clearly in love with their dogs. They were, But they were very, very English. You go to the States and it's nothing but a bunch of people howling and singing and whistling and the dogs are barking. It's a whole other world. So that same breed, a pointer in America, looks differently, acts differently than that same breed in England because it's a cultural thing. So for my friend in Germany to do that with a cocker, again, there's probably cocker breeders rolling in their grave right now hearing that. Well, in her context, I'm thinking, good on you. That's just perfectly fine. Now, don't go back to England and tell them that this is the way it should be. It shouldn't be that way. Um, so I'm a traditionalist, yes, when it is in that traditional context. Once it's out of that context, any adaptation that you need to make to that creature, I think game on. It's fine because at the end of the day, your goal is to have that dog perform in a way that pleases you and that pleases and that performs the, the function that it was put on this earth to perform, whether that's just being in your lap and making you happy with the kids or whether that be, you know, uh, digging up truffles. It doesn't really matter as long as they're doing their thing. Now, in terms of um, crossbreeding and um, uh, making their own breeds, there is, of course, a huge um, pushback on anybody who breeds outside of the breed. Stud books were closed in the Victorian era, 
in the same way that royal families were closed in the Victorian era or before then. It was, the idea was that the purer the blood, the better it was. We now know with genetic research, we now understand um, uh, the consequences of inbreeding and, and too close breeding and closed um, uh, gene pools. The problem is that our current canine system that we have with kennel clubs is based on the old idea. And the old Victorians who set up our kennel clubs didn't set up a plan B because they didn't think one was necessary. There was no discussion as to, okay, if we keep breeding them in and in and in and in, what happens if we hit a brick wall? They didn't think they would ever hit a brick wall. They just thought, well, we would just keep them even purer. They'll get better. Now we know we're hitting brick walls. And in certain countries, France, Germany, and other places, there are mechanisms within their kennel clubs that you could say, look, we've got this absolutely tiny population of dogs that are so inbred, we absolutely require blood from another breed, a closely related breed. Ireland did it with the Irish red and white setter, breeding red setters into Irish red and white setters, which are arguably the same breed anyway. They did it with great success although there is still to this day pushback from some of the purists. But the Irish Kennel Club have done an absolutely astounding job in terms of breeding this breed, which was on the brink, which was basically extinct and bringing it back now to a very high level of competition and, and very high level of a hunting dog. Um, in Germany, there are mechanisms whereby you can, you know, open your stud book for temporary limited period of time, insert some genes from others and then test them and go back. France has a similar system. Now these are the official systems. What people need to realize is that there are there always has been unofficial systems. People have been crossbreeding since day one. It's still going on to this day. It's done by the light of the moon. Nobody admits it. But in certain countries, if you get enough wine into the belly of the breeder, they'll actually show you the real pedigree and they'll show you exactly what's in the background of that dog. And it might surprise a lot of people. Um, it's the same as when you do the what's that 23 and me when you do your ancestry test and, and realize that great grandma might not have actually been great grandma. It might have been you know, the neighbor. Um, it, it, no breed is pure. Um, the whole idea of purity is kind of a myth that we're based on. And yeah, nowadays people are trying to make their own breeds and their own designer breeds, but um, the, 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 the glorious golden age of creating breeds or gun dog breeds specifically or pure breeds is kind of gone. Um, we may go forward now with hybrids. I think that that might be something in the future whereby um, some dog breeders or some part of the dog world moves towards the horse world whereby you can have a quarter blood you can have a half blood three quarter blood you can have certain quote-unquote strains or lines of horses that people know exactly what's in them they're not pure um but they are they're not a thoroughbred but they are you know a blood horse we might find that with dogs who knows um all I know is that the power of the kennel clubs and the influence of the old Victorian system is waning it's waning because we have access to more information nowadays. We have access to better techniques and understanding of genetics so that a lot of the constraints that were put on us in the past and a lot of the social stigma attached to creating your own breed or going your own way is falling away. And there's going to be good and bad. 
um, you know, the doodle craze and people breeding just for, you know, profit for just, you know, mixing this and mixing that just because it'll have a cute name of a breed, you know, um, I, somebody wanted to breed a Picardy Spaniel that I have with a doodle. And why? Because it would make a pick a poodle. And they thought the name was nice and they could sell them for five grand. And I'm like, oh, okay, here we go again. So anytime profit comes into the equation, you know, that there's going to be problems, but from a genetic point of view and from a free market, you know, sort of view, really, what can you do about it? I mean, they're not breaking any, you know, signed contract. Uh, they're not, they didn't say they wouldn't do it on paper and then breach the contract. They're just doing something that a lot of people find objectionable. So I'm mm -hmm. sort of open-minded about it. Um, but I also need to remind people who are doing it that, with our increased knowledge of genetics and our modern approach to dog breeding, we also no longer use some of the tools or face some of the challenges that the people who created our breeds did 150 years ago. 150 years ago, trainers didn't train their dog until they were about a year old. Why? Because half their kennel they knew was going to die. More than half, sometimes the entire kennel. When Parvo and Distemper would visit, they would they would say, we're waiting for the disease to visit the kennel. We're not going to do anything because they knew full well. There was nothing they could do about it. There were no vaccines. There were no medications at that time. Every breeder who was doing any type of volume knew that sometimes they would walk into their kennel and half their dogs or more would be dead or dying. So then the survivors they would do. So we no longer have that. Every dog in every litter is going to survive statistically. We, we lose very few puppies. So we don't have to deal with that. And then on the other hand, when they had a lot survived, they killed a lot of dogs. That's the, that's the basic truth of dog breeding and how we got here was that back in the day, every breeder had a boneyard out back. Every breeder made those hard decisions to keep the ones that were fittest. And basically, and they use the word collar euthanized nowadays, we'll say they killed them. I, you know, there are reports from kennel men they said that when I first became a kennel boy, I was eight years old and I was a kennel man until I was 85. I, I ran the Duke's kennel here. I did this for this Lord. And my first job as a kennel boy was the kennel man would tell me, okay, here's a dozen dogs. You take them down to the creek and you shoot them all. Yeah, no, this is uh, well, no, it's well known, you know, with uh, chocolate Labradors and, uh, you know, you have it in, I think they had it in Ridgebacks when you would have a Ridgeback that didn't have the Ridge you know, these kind of things. Yes. And that is the reality. It's the sad reality, but it's also something that people need to be aware of is that reading is not easy and it comes with some very difficult decisions sometimes. And there, uh, Bob Wheelie, one of the greatest pointer breeders in the world in his book called Wing and Shot, he said that there are very few breeders in the world. There are a lot of people that produce puppies. There are a lot of people who have dogs and, and, and produce offspring is that there are very few breeders. He says, because a breeder, the word to him, the word breeder with a capital B is someone who understands the consequences of his actions and is prepared to take the necessary actions to ensure that the breed is moving in the way that they want it to move. And is also, as I mentioned earlier, resisting the forces of nature that want it to go back to the mean, to the, to the average, to the lowest common dom denominator in order to keep it at that level certain things have to take place. Um, no. Not all of them are pleasant. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's for culling dogs though, right, anymore. I mean, nowadays those dogs go to pet homes and, you know, you, you find other ways. We do have alternatives. Um, in 
most cultures, but if there are cultures in this world today, um, in some of the European cultures, that neutering a dog and spaying a dog is worse than culling it. They they simply can't get their head around that. Um, we do. We place them with pet homes. I could, if I'm not a breeder, it's one of the reasons I'm not a breeder is I don't want to have to deal with the puppies and all that sort of thing. But um, if I were a breeder, yeah, I mean, I'm in charge of that dog for its entire life, no matter what happens at its house or at its home. And yes, I would spay and neuter them and place them in pet homes. I've helped friends who are breeders place them in pet homes because the dog had a genetic condition or was, you know, this way or that. We had bad hips or whatever. I've helped do it. So we have alternatives to it. But those alternatives are not universal. There are people who don't agree with those things and will call their dogs. And there are other people who simply ignore all of that. But placing a dog in a pet home, neutering the dog, those are decisions that have to be made. They have financial consequences and they have emotional consequences. And anybody who's in the dog breeding business needs to understand that, that it's not a one-off thing. And a lot of the problems that come in dog breeds is because of people who think it's a one-off thing. A person can have one terrible litter and that litter can go on to have a huge negative impact impact on a breed. You know, they've traced a lot of hip dysplasia issues in certain breeds back to like basically one dog, you know, or two dogs that never should have been bred. And now we're sort of left cleaning up the mess. I think the AKC American Kennel Club did a study and uh, the average breeder uh, was into breeding for less than five years. Like no, really there's not a lot of long-term breeders. In fact, like they, they compared it to golf. They said that people get into dogs for about the same period of time that they get into golf. Yes. Some people stick with it for a lifetime, but a lot of people take it up and then, and then drop it. But if you drop golf, golf will still be fine. But if you breed for five years and breed a load of crap, well, then people are left picking up your mess for years yeah. and years afterwards. This is a, a totally, you know, going off on a tangent here. But the but uh, you know, I went around a client's house the other day, and they had a beagle. And I'm so used to every beagle I meet is like the fat couch potato. <laughs> and this person, I don't think they'd done it intentionally, but they had got a working line beagle, mm. and I couldn't believe it. Like I it. Like I've never seen a dog like it. It was like a, uh, it was almost like a, a working cocker, you know, it was just so busy. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I, it really left an impression on me. Like I was having a, <laughs> uh, I'm such a, this is such a childish thing to do, but <laughs> I was having a conversation with uh, my partner the other day. And I said, if you had to take on a dog as like a project, to do yeah. like say for example scent detection with but you know you know i'm not gonna know you're not gonna keep the dog forever but just like as a as a fun project what would you do and for me after seeing that dog i would love to have a yeah. go at that because it was just it was just so cool why not we, we've had a number of articles i write for a magazine called hunting dog confidential i'm the editor and writer in that and as well as project upland here in the states and we featured just because i find it super cool when people use different breeds for different things We've done a number of articles. There is a gator. I think he's a chihuahua and he hunts quail. And then there's oh a, yeah, a bulldog. I need to find uh, that. Yeah, yeah. And a bulldog. Uh, what does he do? An English bulldog or American bulldog that hunts ducks. Um, and all these huh. mixed breeds, dachshunds that, oh yeah. I, I just think it's fantastic seeing these dogs that are just completely out of, you know, their sort of niche, but doing things that they're actually pretty good at doing. 
you know, well, and I applaud you, anybody who you does mentioned, that. You kind of alluded to it a few times, and the name of the breed has gone out of my head, but the truffle hunting breed in Italy. Yeah, it's a um, Lagotto. Yeah. A Lagotto Ramagnolo. Uh, it's an Italian breed of a curly hair. It looks like a little kind of fuzzy poodle that hunts uh, truffles. Yeah. I, I went down a little bit of a truffle hunting rabbit hole at one point and started doing a lot of research on that. And truffle hunting, I think, is gaining some popularity. It's still nowhere near what it's like in Europe, but in the UK. And there are people doing it. But a lot of people that I came across were doing it with, for example, like Labradors and stuff Truth. like that. Um, but seeing that beagle the other day with the genetics of having the nose to the ground. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, but. Well, you know, so when I was talking to Cameron and others, you know, they're now using dogs, they're training. So in Florida, they have an invasive species of uh, Burmese python snakes. Yes. And they would send guys out with flashlights at night trying to find them. And they'd find maybe one a day or one a week or something like that. And then they started training dogs to do it. And they're finding 10 in a day. So there are dogs now that are trained and training to hunt snakes and they could do anything. And then I've heard about people using them for berries. So truffles fine. But what about morels? I love morels and I'd love to go pick certain morels. And I'm on a, I'm on a Facebook group of foragers here in my, in my province. I live in Manitoba, which is in central Canada, which is, oh my God, Manitoba is the size of France and there's like a million people. So the rest is basically forest and prairie. And so there's a lot of foraging to be done here. You know, anything from morels to lobster mushrooms to, uh, you know, uh, blueberries and all sorts of things. Well, people are very, it's, they're hard to find sometimes. You got to really look around. And I'm thinking, man, I should get a dog and train it to find morels. And when it does, to bark. So I'll just sit on the side of the road, send my dog in there, and then wait. And when it's barking, oh, it found a patch of morels. I mean, man, I, I don't know if I should be saying this in public now. Somebody's going to get this idea and beat me to it. But you could totally do that. Like, just ask people, what do you seek? What are you out there looking for? Chances are a dog could find it faster and better than you can. You know, mm. so not only truffles, I don't know, what do you, do you um, pick mushrooms in the, in the UK? Like, yeah, you know, do you have a hobby? Do, yeah. yeah. Well, why not train a dog to do it? They'll find them faster. And, mm. and you know what? We're always trying to, you could probably even train it so that it only knows the type you want. You know, like half the problem with mushroom well, finding is you have to find out which ones are going to kill you or not. I, yes. I went to a workshop. Uh, a couple of months back with a lady called Kat Serafina and her business is she trains dogs to detect Japanese knotweed, which is an invasive plant in the right. UK. Yeah. So, yeah. I heard that as well. There are some invasive plants here that we want them to detect. Yeah. That's what they're doing as well. Hey, yeah. So it's definitely possible. It's definitely. So when you did all of this traveling, did you come across, was there any, did you have any dicey moments, any any kind of crazy stories or anything go wrong or I don't know, did any, any really memorable moments? That's a good question. We had no dicey moments, memorable moments. Oh, I, don't, I can't tell you how many, you know what I mean? It's just like, um, so uh, the there's a breed of a dog in uh, Spain called the Spanish double-nosed pointer, the old Spanish pointer, which for years and years when I first started my research was quote-unquote extinct. Um, uh, but it turns out that they weren't. There was a, um, a veterinary student doing his doctoral thesis and he decided to find out if the breed still existed. And sure enough, there were still a few in the old mountains in Spain somewhere. He, he rounded them up, bought a few, bred them, and recreated or revived this breed. And at first, I didn't know what the double nose 
referred to. And some people said, well, it's because it air sense and body sense, or it, it runs with its nose up and down. So it's double nose. No, 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 it's not. It basically has a double nose. It's got a cleft lip and its nose looks like the end of a double barrel shotgun. I think I've seen this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't think they existed, but then the internet comes along and sure enough, I found this veterinary student and he shows me some pictures and I was amazed. We go to Spain and I had only seen pictures and we drive up to this guy's driveway and he opens the door of his kennel and four or five of these double nose pointers. And I wish there was a camera to get the reaction on my wife and my face because it was at first she's like, what the fuck? Like, like this is the most, <laughs> this is the most bizarre looking creature I've ever seen. But within about two minutes after they cuddled up to us and, and we're patting them, we're looking at each other going, these are the cutest dogs I've ever, like it, it went from shock to awe uh, after a while. And then they took us, they lived in the Pyrenees mountains where basically all pointing dogs trace to. And we went and hunted with these dogs in the Pyrenees mountains. And I thought, I thought, Lisa, we've just stepped into a time machine. We're, we're 500 years ago hunting like they used to. The only thing is they have guns instead of crossbows, but it's, it's, yeah, it was like a time machine. Um, and, you know, other situations like that, where it just seemed like we were in a different era, just, just went back in time to see these things. Um, dicey moments. No, not really. Um, there were some dogs that, um, yeah. Who, what dogs were they? I think, um, one breeder of Dratars in Germany. Oh no, it was Weimaraners in Austria, in Austria. Um, this dog, this female dog, like they're allowed in pubs and, and outdoor cafes and things like that. And I'm sitting there with my friend and he's got two dogs. Uh, and he, he was a pharmacist and he also uses them to hunt, but also to protect his pharmacy. So they're super protection type dogs. And we're just having a beer in the afternoon. And this one of his dogs puts, she comes up to me and puts her head on my lap. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, I wouldn't pat her if I were you. You might just want to freeze until I get her collar on her. And so he did. And he moves her away and puts her in a down position. But basically, she was about to kill me. <laughs> she was or about to sort of have at me. She was just kind of suspicious of me and maybe my language or my body language or something like that. And what I thought was this dog was, you know, she wanted to cuddle. She went, she put her head on my lap and was looking at me with these little puppy dog eyes. And he's like, yeah, no, don't be doing that. So we learned early on that in Germany, especially, we never patted a dog unless you ask the owner, can I pat your dog? And if they say, yeah, they were fine. But a lot of times they would say, yeah, maybe not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a similar story, actually, because I work with a lot of dogs that are aggressive to people. And when we... Uh, if I go and do a house visit, I always say to the person, you know, I put the dog in another room or have them on lead, but, you know, you want to have some kind of safety measure there. And I thought it went without saying, but clearly not. So I went around this person's house and they had the dog on lead, except they just walked straight up to me with an Ooh. Anatolian shepherd, Ooh. massive dog, massive dog. So the lead was kind of useless when she just walked straight towards me. And then right. the dog is literally got his nose in my groin growling yeah and i like <laughs> yeah it's real... thankfully i managed to get out of that situation without being bitten but uh yeah that was a close call for me as well so yeah i i know the feeling 
when we were when we were in Germany, after we were in Germany, we went to the Czech Republic and we visited the club for the Chesky Fosek. And a Chesky Fosek looks exactly like a German wire hair pointer. Not exactly. I mean, there are differences, but from a distance, they look like a German wire hair. And we had been around German wire hairs, Dratars for for you know weeks by that point. And then we were in Czech Republic, and the club invited us to their for a meeting at their clubhouse. And we pull up into the driveway, and there's probably 25 of these dogs all standing there, none of them on leash. And we didn't get out of the car. We rolled down the, the window and said, uh, you know, is this going to be okay? And they were quite confused because the Fosek is the complete opposite. They were all just a bunch of snuggle bunnies. They were all great, you know, but they looked like Drathars that we were used to not patting. But they said, yeah. And so the breeds are very similar in looks and in performance aspects. But in terms of temperament, the Foseks were like fantastic they yeah they weren't even on lead we could pat any we didn't have to ask for permission whereas in germany yeah we we asked for permission because that's how they were selected especially the wine runners the wine runners are tested for a very strong protective instinct and so you want to make sure you're asking for permission oh so interesting i don't think of wine runners as being uh like uh, having guardian instincts like that so yeah that's that's good oh, in, if, they will not be bred in germany if they don't like that, that's just a, that is a deal breaker everywhere else in the world. We don't want that. Um, and I had wine runners and none of them showed any sort of uh, untoward protective instinct, but I guarantee you, if somebody came at me and I had my wines with me, well, yeah, it would have been a mess. Like, mm-hmm. where's my French dogs? I have French dogs now. Nah, they, they, you know, if somebody wants to come into the house, they'd show them the way in and just sit there on the sofa and having a glass of wine and a cigarette or something. They would just, <laughs> This is why it's so important to choose the dog that is fits your lifestyle, right? Exactly. exactly. So where can where can people find out more about what you do then, Craig? The easiest way is my website, Dog Willing, D-O-G Willing, W-I-L-L-I-N-G, all one word, all one word, dogwilling.ca because I'm in Canada. And that will get you links to everywhere, to my books, to my articles, videos, photographs, all that sort of stuff. Ah, oh, fantastic. So thanks for sharing so many cool stories and joining me on the podcast really appreciate it thank you very much and you, make sure to give me an update on your beagle adventures i think you should get one <laughs> and i think you should train it to detect certain types of mushrooms or other you know goodies in the forest that you want to harvest i think that would be a great idea <laughs> okay i will do Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave a review on whatever podcast app you listen to this on, whether that's Spotify, Apple, or any other podcast app, or just share this podcast with a friend or on Instagram or Facebook. That would really help more people to discover the podcast and I would massively appreciate it. See you in the next episode.